Good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the latest of the Europe question series being organized by the European Institute at LSE in conjunction with the uh, European Council for Foreign Relations. On Foreign Relations. Tonight's topic, European competitiveness is completing the single market key. Now, I'm going to get in severe trouble if I don't announce at this point that there's something called a Twitter hashtag. Do you know what Twitter is? No, all right. The Twitter hashtag is at LSEEU question. So anybody who wants to start tweeting furiously, you now know what the, the position is. <laughs> the way we're going to do this is that each speaker will introduce the topic in their own way, speak for about 12, maybe 15 minutes maximum, at which point I'll hold up the red card to them. And we will then have ample time for a discussion and debate. So start thinking of your questions as early as possible. When it comes to questions, let me know who you want to speak, tell us who you are, and be short. Be succinct. Now, we have three very distinguished speakers this evening. On my left is uh, Professor Sebastian Dulin from uh, European Council on Foreign Relations, and also from the HTV School in, uh, in Berlin, which is a technical university, if I, if I have that correctly. Uh, university of Applied Science. Oh, same thing. On my immediate right... Janos Papantoniou, who was formerly finance minister of Greece in the days when the Greek economy grew very rapidly. But his other claim to fame is that he took Greece into the euro. And on the far right here, whether that's ideological or not, we have Professor Damien Chalmers from the law department, former director of the European Institute at LSE and very well known to most of you in the audience. So without further ado, let's go ahead and we'll start with Sebastian. Okay. Oh, let's see whether... Okay, well, thank you for the invitation. Thanks, everyone, for coming. European competitiveness is completing the single market the key. This is a very timely issue at the moment. If you go to Brussels or to London, you hear everyone talking about the single market, and you, when people talk about the single market, you have the feeling it is the panacea for all the problems Europe, Europe has. Here in the UK, the hope is that a push for deeper single markets um, helps to balance the opinion in favor of staying in the EU, because a lot of the business community is very keen on the single market, and you hope that you can win them over and with them part of the Tory party. If you go to continental Europe, to Brussels, there's the hope that the problems we have with high unemployment, stagnating economies, and the appreciating euro can be solved with a single market. So the hope is if you complete the single market, you make European companies competitive again and a couple more cents against the US dollar in the euro exchange rate will not hurt. And actually sometimes it's even seen that completing the single market might be a way to help Germany rebalance and, well, remove the imbalances in Europe. So the hope here would be if you complete the single market, consumption would jump up in Germany and the Germans would import more and and by that, they would bring down this perversely high current account surplus they have been accumulating over the past years. Yes. Well, um, to make, make it short, for all of those, all of you who, who have these hopes or who, who think they are plausible, I would have to, to drop a little bit of cold water on you because I think they are completely, this is completely excessive. You will not get anything which can be really felt 
from completing the single market at this stage. And the reason is, uh, there are several reasons for it. Um, let, me, but let me first start with saying a few words on the single market, because single market, as we have seen it so far, really is a great achievement. When you travel around the world, you will find out that the EU as it is today is envied around the world. I've been to Brazil this summer, and when you talk to the people there, they think how they can make regional integration work, how they can recreate something which resembles the single market. Not only single market for producers, but also for the companies. This is, well, and, and if we look into details, we see where the benefits are. Uh, we see the choices we have as consumers today in Europe, which brings up income, real income of, of the broad population. But what might be more important is the competitiveness gained by the companies through the single market. And this is more than just the rules and regulations we have, but it is what the companies on the ground have made out of it. And for the country where I come from, from Germany, these transnational production networks which have been built over the past years are most important here. We have our manufacturing sector is now one of the largest exporting sectors in the world, and this is due to the fact that Germany has been able to benefit to a large extent from the single market. Many parts of the machinery and the cars which are now sold abroad are produced, abroad, are produced in other countries, in Slovakia, in the Czech Republic, in Austria, in France, in Spain. And because German companies can outsource to these countries with a lower wage level, they can sell more cheaply abroad. Um, so this has increased price competitiveness in Germany, but has also helped the other countries. Because what you have often seen, especially when parts of the production process have been outsourced to countries like Slovakia, is that the business owners in Germany, they have gone there and have trained the people how to produce certain parts or do certain steps in the production process and have thus increased, helped to increase productivity. If you look, for example, in the car sector in Slovakia, you have seen annual productivity increases of 7-8%. And this is reflected in the wage increase and has helped development of these Central and Eastern European economies. So, and here the single market was key. I don't think you could have seen that without the single market. It is common standards, but it's also the rule of law which you have brought through the Copenhagen process and the EU institutions. So, if the single market is great so far, what's wrong with hoping for the next big leap? Well, the first point is that all the low-hanging fruits have been harvested. What's coming out is much more complicated, and it's not very clear-cut whether it will provide similar benefits, and I'll come to some examples in a moment. But the second point, and I think we are going to hear more about that in a moment, is that the austerity and the euro crisis is fragmenting the single market to an extent which, well, a few small twitches in the regulatory environment and in opening up some markets will not be able to help. Let me say a few words on that. So the first point is that the euro crisis has fragmented capital markets. There was an ECB survey published, I think, yesterday or today, and it shows that small and medium-sized enterprises in the periphery still have a lot of problems accessing credits. This is not a problem in Germany because there's capital flight into Germany and investors would like to invest in Germany no matter whether it's in mortgages or in, in uh, SME credits. So nowadays you see that a badly managed German company usually pays lower interest rates than a well-managed Spanish one. What does that mean? Well, of course, it's highly unfair, but it's also inefficient because the single market should take care that the well-managed companies grow and the badly managed companies shrink. This is not happening at the moment, and this is a problem. 
this starts to fragment the single market because the companies in the periphery often even lack working capital. And so German companies are starting to source parts and components at home and not abroad. So these production networks are starting to break down. In addition, if you look at the cuts in public investment as a result from austerity, the cuts are spending on research and development and education, all this weights on European competitiveness. And, well, then add to that, austerity is pushing up the current account surplus of the Eurozone because economies are shrinking, we are not importing as much, and this makes the Euro more expensive, and again, this weights on competitiveness. Now compare that to what has been proposed to complete the single market, and there are these 12 proposals from the EU Commission under the Single Market Act 2, for example, and I have just picked out some of them. One is to, more, to imp- uh, introduce more competition for rail passenger service in the domestic markets. Well, frankly, I mean, Britain has tried that, and if I occasionally use trains in Britain and regularly use trains in Germany, I'm not so sure whether that really has helped the competitiveness of the of British industries. At least I don't see how, because there's, I mean, the service quality is not higher and the price is not lower. And I don't see how transforming or, or moving this experiment on a European scale would really make a difference in terms of overall competitiveness of the European economy. Let's look at another proposal. Um, The EU Commission also wants to develop the Euros portal into a fully-fledged cross-border job placement and recruitment tool. The Euros portal. I mean, this is a very good uh, example because I don't think how many people of you know what the Euros portal is. It's an online database, obviously, for job searches, but frankly, I don't see, it's run by the EU Commission, I don't see why you need this, because this is something private markets could, could provide, and I don't think there is really the problem of, of uh, information deficit when it comes to cross-border labor movement here. Um, so, and I could go on, uh, name the other 10 proposals. They are all at about the same level. They all do not make a large difference for the European economy. Of course, some of the problems we have of the euro crisis could be solved. For example, the fragmentation of the credits markets probably could be solved with a really meaningful banking union. Um, Unfortunately, this is not going to happen. First, we have Germany and the coalition agreements at the moment. They have proposals in it, which means that you will not have a centralized resolution mechanism. And on the other hand, you have countries like Britain who clearly do not want to have a single supervisory mechanism, um, at least not one for the whole European Union. And so we are not going to see a completed banking union anytime soon. So if you go to austerity, there's no shift from austerity away towards uh, growth strategy, investing in more research and development, education and infrastructure. So this also will continue to weigh on, on European competitiveness. And this is not just an abstract concept. If you go to Germany, some of our waterways they have infrastructure which is 100 years old. So some of the locks in the waterways have been built by the emperor 100 years ago. They are still in operation, but they might break down any time. If you go to the Autobahn and want to transport big pieces of equipment, a lot of bridges are close to that. So sometimes companies now have to run detours of several hundred kilometers, which takes the transportation of one night into three nights, and that becomes very expensive. And all this weights on competitiveness, and a little more competition in domestic rail passenger services will not change that. 
Okay, I just got the sign, and in order to have more time for discussion and less for just statements, um, let me come to a conclusion. We have big problems in Europe, but I think completing the single market is not one of the priorities here. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, uh, the LSE, the European Council on Foreign Relations, and of course the European Commission, for inviting me to join this very interesting discussion. And uh, the first comment I, I wish to make is that uh, what you, we heard is a very pleasant surprise for me, at least, because I usually disagree with Germans, but I'm full in, in full agreement with Sebastian Dalin uh, for his approach to what happens with the European economy and what is the role of the single market and the opening up of the single market in fostering growth. Uh, as a matter of fact, I personally have invested a lot in opening up the single market because uh, back in 1984, I was, well, I'm considerably younger, I, had, uh, I was a member of the Duke Committee. Now, the Duke Committee, nobody knows or remembers it, but anyway, it was a committee composed by representatives, personal representatives of the then Prime Ministers, uh, which was convened, uh, had convened in Brussels, and we had spent uh, endless nights and days and hours in discussing about how to prepare the legislation for the single market. It was an initiative by Jacques Delors, then the European President, uh, supported very strongly by Mr. Starcher in the UK. Malcolm Rifkin was the representative of Mr. Starcher in that committee. Maurice Falk from uh, President Mitterrand, and I was uh, the representative of the then Prime Minister Andreas Papandreou. And I thought uh, at the time that um, the single market is indeed a key component of, of, of growth in Europe. Uh, I believe that the single market, uh, research and development, market liberalization are the supply-side factors which sustain productive production in Europe. And I also agree with the main points of the Commission's new uh, initiatives, particularly as regards the letting uh, individuals and citizens play a larger role in the economy as consumers, as entrepreneurs, or professionals. I agree the, about the need to unify the, digital the digital market, which is very strong and very dynamic. I agree with upgrading infrastructures and networks, such as wireless services. And of course, I also agree, particularly for from, for a country like Greece, on the need, and Germany, on the need to uh, implement uh, very speedily the, direct, the directive on services, because services represent 40% of the economy of, the Euro of Europe, and uh, having been thought of as a, a non-traded sector, is burdened with enormous inefficiencies. I believe if Germany, for instance, liberalizes the services sector, uh, this will be very good for Europe as a whole. However, <coughs> um, I would like to remind you that as Keynes taught us, uh, micromanaging the supply side is never efficient so long as macro conditions are not right. And this is exactly the problem with Europe today. Uh, you cannot have growth by improving or micro-engineering the supply side so long as there is so much austerity and so long as the confidence in the European economy and the sustainability of the Europe is so low. Uh, now Europe has negative or zero growth for a long time. I would like to remind you that uh, the per capita income of the Eurozone today is at exactly the level it was in 2007 uh, for uh, 
Greece cities back to the year 2000, and Italy lives uh, at the level of a per capita income of 1997. This is the depth of the European recession. This is the depth of the European problem. And so long as the macroeconomic policies are not, uh, are not right, there is no prospect for any initiatives on the part of the European Commission in the direction of improving the supply side to have any effect at all. So I agree fully with Sebastian that this is, of course, an important project. It should go forward, but has nothing to do with facing the current problems of the European economy, which are, which are fundamentally macroeconomic and also fundamentally political. Because the problem is how to reverse austerity policies or to compensate for demand losses in the South, particularly by a more expansionary demand policies in the north or a program for investment assistance in the south. That's one key thing. Uh, relaxing austerity and uh, injecting more demand into the system. And the second major problem is how to restore confidence in the euro. Now, what I'm suggesting by this, uh, the lack of progress in the unification of Europe in the fiscal and financial uh, sectors, that is the fact that there is no fiscal union, no eurobonds, no uh, mutualization of debt, uh, no real banking union, uh, nothing which resembles to the way the United States dollar zone works, where you have a single finance ministry, a single treasury, a single con congress, and single finance ministry to decide about fiscal policy, and of course, banking union is full and complete. So, so long as these things do not progress, the confidence of markets and people in the sustainability of the Euro project is being undermined. Now, you may say, and so what? Well, so what is not so what, because this undermining of the confidence of the Euro penalizes the weaker countries of the Eurozone, not the strong ones. This is the key difference between North and South. Because if people and markets believe that the, union, uh, the currency union will get dissolved, they don't think that Germany will have to quit or Netherlands will have to quit. They think that Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece may quit. And they penalize these countries by charging on them very high borrowing costs. Now, there is not a single currency union. We have two sub monetary subzones, currency subzones, the northern one and the southern one. In the north, enterprises and citizens borrow at half the rates compared to the south. This is the key issue. A small and medium-sized enterprise in Greece borrows at rates which are close to 7 or 8 or 8.5 percent, while a corresponding small and medium-sized enterprise in Germany or the Netherlands borrows at 2, 2.5, 3 or 3.5 percent. And if you talk about uh, long-term financing that is issuing uh, corporate bonds, the difference is not 2 one, two to 1, it may reach 10 to 1. So, lack of confidence in the euro, deriving from the lack of progress in fiscal, financial, and economic unification, penalizes just the south, only the periphery. It rewards the strong, it rewards the core, but punishes the weak. And the question is, how long can this division last? 
can uh, the European Union, the Eurozone, survive on a bipolar basis, having a northern pole and southern pole? I'm afraid not. Because uh, the southern pole, if it continues to be weak, because now the financial market is broken into two parts, then the uh, south will uh, continue to seek assistance for the north. At some point, the peoples of the north and the parliaments of the north will resist giving further financial assistance. They will keep on pressing the south, as they are now doing, to take more austerity measures. But people on the, of the south will not have the stomach to take more austerity measures. There will be no governments or no parliaments wishing to vote for them. So there will be clashes, there will be rifts, there will be crises, political crises, financial crises, which may endanger the very existence of the euro. So the key point in, uh, in, 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 in Europe today is to address these particular issues. How to readjust macroeconomic policies by relaxing the austerity part and reinforcing the demand part wherever it can be applied. That's one key thing. And the second thing is to devise a new blueprint for the future of the Eurozone, for the economic constitution of the currency union, which will convince markets and people about its long-term sustainability. Once confidence is restored in the Euro, automatically, but gradually of course, borrowing costs will be equalized because the fear of the weaker countries dropping out of the Euro will eventually vanish, and this will reintegrate reunify the financial markets of Europe and will establish a level playing field in, for competition and the revival of, of, of economic activity. You need to act on both fields, on both fronts. You sh should act at the, uh, at the level of macroeconomic and fiscal policies on the one hand, but you also have to act, uh, to act at the same time on the question of reforming the economic constitution of Europe. Just focus on one field and forgetting the other won't do because if you improve the policy mix, if you pursue, for instance, also uh, domestic reforms in terms of privatizations, liberalizations, this, that, or the other, without looking at the confidence factor that derives from the lack of progress in the constitution, in the economic constitution of the Eurozone, then will, you will not get the rewards you deserve by pursuing reforms and by, by applying the right macroeconomic policy. The two processes should are parallel. The one will reinforce the other. And if the one advances and the other is taken back, then the, uh, the, 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 the sector which does not advance, say the unification of Europe, will undermine the success of the first. So these are very complicated questions. I would not like to discourage the Commission in pursuing this micromanagement of the supply side and pushing forward with, uh, with, its, uh, with its reforms. I believe there are important reforms because the improvement of the supply side ensures a higher rate of potential growth for the European Union and the Eurozone, but though all, that, all those reforms do not address the current burning issue, how to stop this rot in the Eurozone falling over to lower and lower levels of output and employment, how to restore confidence in the Euro project, and therefore create conditions for fast economic recovery and steady growth. Thank you very much.
It now falls to Damien to try to defend the single market, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to defend the single market. What I'm going to try and do is hopefully yeah. explain its importance to the transformation of the European economy and individual European economies. And to do that, and to show its link with, if you like, the whole issue of competitiveness, I want to take us back just before the, the, this great summer we, we had to March and to invoke Mario Draghi. And he gave two presentations, one on the 13th of March to the Eurogroup, which is on his website, one on the 14th of March, which you can't find on his website, but was circulated to the European Council. And in it, he made a big thing in both of them about how the future route to competitiveness and to the promised land was through completion of the single market. And in both cases, there were a series of slides making this case. But when you looked in these presentations, there was a series of paradoxes. So first of all, he had a series of slides on the competitiveness of European economies. And he chose the Global Competitive Index by the World Economic Forum. If ever there was a slanted index that favoured the US model, this was it. But if you looked at that uh, index, seven, arguably eight out of the top 11 economies were European ones, either EU ones or ones that modelled their economy and their regulation, in the case of Switzerland and Norway, on the EU. He then showed some trade statistics between 2000 and 2010. And what you found was that although OED, OECD states had lost a share of their world trade, particularly to East Asia and Southeast Asia, for EU15 it was less than for the United States. For uh, the A12 countries it actually increased their share of trade. The only country that did poorly out of it, relatively, was the UK, which had a bigger slide than most. And then when you actually look at other figures beyond that, if one looks at World Trade Organization figures, a country that is never quoted, the great star of the World Trade Organization in terms of competitiveness in world trade is Belgium. It has 2.4% of world trade, which is just slightly less than us, which is 2.6% of world trade. And if you look at Germany, they have 7.8% of world trade, as opposed to the Americans who have 8.4%, except that Germany is about a quarter of the size and population of America. And one has to say that if one puts Germany and Belgium together, they come close to what China is. And they're a lot smaller in terms of a lot fewer Germans and Belgians. So if you looked at it purely in those terms... How could it be that competitiveness and place in the global market was such an issue when Europe seemed at one level to be doing quite well? And it looked even further more of a paradox if you actually looked at what had happened with attempts of the single market. So for ages, the EU, largely on the UK model, has been trying to liberalise its energy and gas markets. It tried in 1996, tried again in 2003, tried again in 2009. They still haven't managed it. And even in the UK, which is supposed to be liberalised, we've seen recently, it's still not seen as that competitive. So there was this big question. Why, for such a smart man, was he focusing on something that seemed, if you like, slightly peripheral to the problem for a region of the world that could claim quite a measure of success? And what I'm going to try and do in the next six or seven minutes is explain there was a reason for that, and a very clear reason. 
And to do that and to understand this, we really have to see the single market not against recent initiatives like the Single Market Act, which I agree are quite ephemeral, but against what it has done and how it has transformed the economy and and why this has generated certain problems beyond the broader macroeconomic climate. So there are three stages to the history of the single market. The first was the 1992 effect. Now, the 1992 effect was, by today's standards, very marginal. They promised 279 measures. There are now about 3,200 legislative acts, and this does not include the tens of thousands of standards and regulatory acts. If you actually looked at these measures, not just in quantitative terms, but in terms of what they regulated, it was quite peripheral. The central instruments they used, mutual recognition, was a complete failure. That's not my view. It was the Commission's report in 2002. And the main way for bringing it about, which they all hoped for, standardisation, until 2000 was a complete failure. But what it did during that period was it created a political centre and an impetus around which European industry could organise much more effectively and readjust its expectations. So what happened during that period and into the mid-90s was a huge, in the first place, a huge rescaling of European industry. National champions became European champions. The evidence on this is overwhelming, that most of the world's large mergers in that time were in Europe. There was huge foreign direct investment between states, but largely it was European states feeding into other states. So national, large national companies scaled up to be large European companies. Secondly, these large transnational enterprises captured Brussels. If you look at all these industrial standards, these are suitable, whether it be in chemicals and food, in cars. These are, these are things that benefit capital-intensive industries that want a California effect, that can use high standards to protect both their quality, their brand, and their market position. Thirdly, this led to the next stage of the single market. This was in the late 90s where you began to get down market industries which had not been harmonised. Utilities, financial services, transport, all outside the single market initially, or only peripherally harmonised, suddenly became highly integrated. Huge amounts of legislation came through then. And most importantly, the EU began to get serious about what it wanted in its traditional markets in terms of regulating. That if you looked at the markets, you then got not just rather silly things saying you can enter each other markets, but whole new governance arrangements, intellectual property rights, which was quite sweeping and quite intensive. And so by the early 2000s, you had something that was unrecognisable from a decade earlier, both in terms of its economic organisation and its legal and regulatory organisation and sweep. And this led to a series of effects which we're now beginning to wear off and feel some of the consequences. The first effect was what's called the Brussels effect. It gave European industry a huge competitive advantage, not in the way they see it today, but because the European market was so highly regulated and so important to get into, the rest of the world had to adopt its standards. There's a reason we get invited all around the world to China, to Latin America. It's because they know they have to adopt EU standards if they want to sell in Europe, and they adopt one set of standards. But this was a one-off effect. Once Chinese, Latin American industry had readapted their standards, that competitive effect began to wear off. This is the first thing. The second thing was that as the legislative reach increased people realised how inappropriate it was for most small and medium-sized enterprises, for the large part of the world that doesn't export between states. And so it started in 1994, but it reached a crescendo by 2007-2008. You had whole swathes of industry, small and medium-sized, who were quite anti-Brussels, 
They didn't get any of the gains from trading abroad, but they had this regulatory regime that was largely suited for large companies. And you, had to, you got the talk of opt-outs, the small, the small Business Act of 2008, which tries unconvincingly to say EU law shan't apply to small companies. And thirdly, the large industry now was interested far more in global markets. It had scaled up, after all. And it also realised what all large industry realises, that when you just have single static laws, this is not a very sensitive or adaptive regulatory instrument. So from the mid-2000s onwards, industry after industry in Europe said the traditional way of doing things is not working for us. You've got to change your system of regulating because the existing regulation is not adaptive and your way of doing things is not adaptive. A good example is the Cars 21 initiative in uh, the automobile industry. And so what happened as a consequence was that Brussels began moving from the mid-2000s away from just passing lots of Brussels laws to other forms of legislative substitutes. That Brussels, if you want to call it Brussels, I think it's Brussels, passes about 4,200 standards a year, industrial standards. Each of these is that alone. This industrial standardization, each of them creating a market, is far more significant than anything in the Single Market Act. The Trademark Office in the last year gave over 100,000 trademarks. But alongside this, traditional legislation began going down. Brussels created 27 agencies. Traditional way of doing things moved to something we associate more with the US. And for that reason, it lost some of its ability to exclude non-EU companies. You have a model that's small and medium-sized enterprises don't like, and the great benefits that were initially given to large industry have worn off. Now, why then is Mario Draghi saying this is so important? Well, it's partly because it's not clear what else you do in the current crisis. You can make other proposals, but there is an absence of alternatives. There's a path dependency on this. And if you look at what's happened, I just see it, thank you, um, both not just from people like Mario Draghi, but from people like the British and the Germans, they just get large industry to go off to Brussels to say, change your regulatory ways. But it's more of the same. There's another reason. The EU suffers from being an incumbent. This trade I talked about at the beginning makes EU economies much more dependent on the outside world, even large ones than much of the rest of the world. If they lose trade, they really do lose much more of their economy than most, most other economies. And this is a huge problem. They're really, really vulnerable. So there's a protective issue. But there's a third reason, and I think this is why they're doing it. And it's maybe a dishonest reason, it's maybe a masked reason, but it's the following. It's that they're not really interested in increasing the single market. They're interested in liberalising yet further certain parts of domestic markets. And this is where they possibly see areas of growth. And I'll give just one example. And it's the, it's the area of the professions. The professions was first mentioned, well, they had single market legislation since the 80s. But it was a big thing of the Lisbon process back in 2000. And they looked at it in 2004 and they said, well, we have to get a single market. The only problem was they found they did have a single market. Almost any professional wanted to move found it very easy. The problem, however, was there were very high levels of professional regulation in most European economies. So what has happened is 
that EU, uh, EU single market and professions is no, no, no longer about ensuring that the German doctor can move to the UK. It's about ensuring that Italian architects spend less time learning to be an architect and Italy has more architects. It's as simple as that. They're increasingly using competition ways as a, as a way and the, the, the single market as a way of pushing this down. Now, very briefly in my one minute left, what do I think? I think not only are they using the single market to do that, but the other evidence is the Euro Plus Pact, which is where this is clearly going on. If they're serious about this, they shouldn't use the single market. It should be a much more effective competition policy. I don't think they can say that because it's too ideologically charged. This is the first thing. The second thing is Europe's clearly moving towards a European regulatory state a bit like the US. If you look at the sort of institutions that are emerging, they're a bit like those we find in Washington. This is a sign of maturity. But if Europe wants to manage competition through the single market this way, there's an issue of capacity. There's been an issue of capacity in the US where these institutions are repeatedly not funded. We already have that problem in in Europe and the single market surrounding the European banking, area, banking Authority and the European Central Bank. You've given this, these two institutions two roles. One can't find the skills it needs to do its job. This is the European Central Bank in Frankfurt. The other has the skills, but it only has 100 people to do almost an impossible job, which is sort out Europe's banking system. So I think there is an agenda, but it's not the one of ensuring that Germans and British trade more with each other. They already do that. Thank you very much. Thank you to all three speakers for being disciplined, allowing us plenty of time for discussion. So I'm sure you're having heard that the single market is not the cure-all that 10 Downing Street believes it is. Many of you will have questions and provocations that you'd like to put to the speakers. I'll take questions in groups of three. Who would like to start? And please wait for the microphone. Over here, please. Uh, hello, I'm... Just, uh, just tell us who you are as well. Uh, Milan Alcobart. I'm a student at the European Institute. Um, and, yeah, actually for a few decades already, mostly since uh, 85, the white paper on the single market, we've heard about completing it. And my question will be very basic. How would you measure it being complete? Isn't it something of a moving target? Right. Next question, please. Well, in that case, I'm going to interject one. Oh, sorry, one here. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Diego Isker. I'm a, a macroeconomist for a research company. I think the first two presentations you mentioned financial fragmentation as one of uh, key issues weighing down of, on, um, on activity on the um, European economy. My question relates to the incoming uh, asset quality reviews and uh, bank stress tests uh, next year. I just want to know your opinion and how important they will be in terms of uh, tackling this financial fragmentation. Thank you. Any more? Well, that's the one over here, please. Thank you. So, thank you for this uh, speech. My question is for Mr. Papadonil. Could you tell, um, us, tell us who you are, please? I'm Yanis Korkovalos, and I'm a graduate student at the European Institute here. So, um, you offered us a different approach to the crisis. 
um, which is not the one that the Troika is following or Mr. Sturnaris in Greece currently. So my question is quite broad, but if you were minister now, would if, you, if. if you were minister now, would you say no to the Troika? That's my question. Thank you. Right, well, we'll let you answer that one last. Yes. <laughs> so we have to think about it. Why don't, why don't you start? Um, well, maybe I start with this question on how to, to measure the, the single market, because I think I'm the, the economist just sitting here, or how, how to measure whether it's completed or not. Um, well, basically, there, there are two ways of, of doing this. The first would be uh, you measure in how far prices converge within the, the single market, and you do that over a whole number of sectors, including protected sectors like, like maybe doctors, architects, and so on. Um, however, of course, there, there are different uh, living conditions, different wage levels. So even between California and Nebraska, you probably have, have different levels here. And uh, also the U.S. is not a completed single market if you, if you look at it that way because you have a lot of single state legislation which uh, uh, provides certain rules for certain businesses and so on. Um, so in a way, you're right. It's not – well, maybe it's, it's moving towards an ever closer or ever – uh, more unified market, but you never never get there. Um, this is probably true, but the, the idea is to create something uh, which which makes it as easy for for business to do uh, to do to do business across border within the EU as doing it within your own nation state. Um, and I think this is this is a well maybe maybe the best definition to do it, but it's it, I, I admit it's different uh, difficult to quantify. Um, on the stress tests, whether they can overcome fragmentation. I mean, one of the problems we have at the moment is this link between sovereign debt and the banking system. So the banks usually, they have a lot of national debt in their balance sheet of their own government. And whenever, well, there, there, there is some doubt in the sustainability of that debt, um, then the interest rates go up and the the, the, the price for these bonds falls. So the banks have to uh, write down some of the debt and, um, well, this might put them in danger. Uh, and if they fail, the national government has to, to rescue them. So even if there are problems in the, in, the, in, the, in the banking system, then investors might think, well, the sovereign also has problems, the, 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 the spreads go up and there's a self-enforcing circle here. Um, the stress tests by themselves are not going to solve this. Because you are well, you have some certain um, you have some some certain scenarios, but it will not change the fact that Italian banks, which have a lot of Italian debt, where the debt to GDP ratio is 120, 130 um, percent, that they are more vulnerable in this circle than a German bank, which has German bonds, which are now seen as the eurozones and maybe the world's safest asset, and um, therefore there, there, there isn't that much um, that, that much move, movement in the interest rates. Before this is not changing, probably depositors are not going to trust their money the same way to, to, to a bank in Spain as they would do in Frankfurt. And this means the fragmentation will remain. Unless you solve this underline, you cut the link between sovereign debt and the, the, the problem of the banking system, you provide a coherent, uniform resolution and deposit insurance mechanism on the European level, I don't see how the fragmentation in the credit markets will go away. Um, I think the only question I could add anything half intelligent on was the one on completing the single market. I mean, the question, at least I took it as implicit, was that the, the phrase is a bit of a misnomer. And 
The misnomer operates at a number of levels, as, as was just rightly said by Sebastian. Traditional way of looking at it is securing sort of price convergence across as many markets, uh, goods, services, and labour markets as you can. This never happens uh, really anywhere in the world. So the next thing that um, people have looked at is obviously getting it as approximate to, to the situation one finds in a national territory as one can. But this implies huge political commitment. And actually, if you look at single markets across the world, there is huge divergence. If you go to federal states like India or Nigeria or Brazil, they in some, ways, in some aspects, in some sectors, actually have less market integration than the EU. Now, the, the better way, I think, of looking at it is that the single market is a commitment to intensify market integration in particular sectors. They always is a program to, to try and open up uh, particular sectors by putting in new regulatory re- arrangements. So whenever they want, say they want to complete the single market, it's a rhetorical device for saying there are new sectors we want to liberalise or regulate. So the Single Market Act that was Single Market Act 1 and 2, the big things were transport, the digital single market above all else, and services. But they don't really know what they mean by services. So it is still a rather diffuse, open-ended commitment. You may answer not just on Greece, but um, on the single market as well. (laughs) Right. Now, the question is a very challenging one, and uh, before I answering it, I, I would like to, to say a few words about the, 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 the Greece's real problem. I, I mean, why, why Greece is in this, in, in this crisis trap and cannot uh, escape. Uh, the basic problem uh, of Greece now and the uh, weakness of its bargaining position with the Troika owes to two factors which are separate the one from the other. The first factor is the uh, amazing inefficiency of uh, the Greek governments over the last uh, few years in implementing reforms. If you implement reforms, of course, you don't solve your problems, but you win points, you improve your face, and you gain bargaining power uh, to uh, demand uh, more assistance and uh, get and, and get you know uh, your way better in the negotiations. Now, in terms of reforms, uh, the present government and the previous one have not done much. The tax system remains extremely bad. The only thing they've done is to impose new taxes uh, continuously. The administration has not improved. There is no meritocracy. There is no efficiency in the administration. The judicial system uh, still works in a very Way. The universities are in disarray. The health system is, is de- dis- dissolving itself. So overall, the reform process has not advanced. And this puts the Greek, uh, the Greek side on a very good position vis-à-vis the Troika and makes it hard to say no to the Troika because the Troika... Uh, response by saying the following, that last time when we released the, 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 the tranche for you, you promised us to do this, that and the other. Now you come after six months, you, uh, you, you ask for a new tranche without having fulfilled your previous obligations. And there, the Greece, the Greek government is in a very weak position. Now, the second reason why, why uh, things are difficult with the Troika is that the uh, Troika's recipe is wrong. I mean, Greece is defending itself against, against applying the wrong sort of policies. And what do I mean by, by this? 
the recipe of the Troika and the memorandum is wrong on three counts. Uh, I briefly mentioned them in uh, my intervention. I will repeat them now. The first is that austerity applied is excessive. And the, Greece's, or, uh, the Greek government's uh, peculiar uh, property is that although it has been very weak on reforms, it has shown an excessive zeal in applying austerity measures. There he, he got A1, double first. And this is really, really amazing because he, he, he got high marks in doing the, the wrong kind of thing, in applying the wrong component of the, of, of the Troika's uh, uh, message. The second uh, account on which the Troika's strategy is wrong is that uh, it, uh, the, it applies excessive austerity without applying compensatory demand measures. This is amazing in an adjustment program. Wherever you, uh, an adjustment program uh, is applied with austerity involved in it, the IMF suggests either devaluation to prop up external demand. This is not possible, unfortunately, in, uh, in the currency union. And other ways should be found, namely to encourage the economists of the core, German and others, to follow more expansionary fiscal policies. They have resisted this. To encourage the European Central Bank to follow more aggressive monetary policy. Again, the Germans have resisted this. Or to put together a, a, what is called a Marshall Plan, an investment plan for sustaining public investment in the South. None of these things has been done. So Greece has been left with excessive austerity, austerity without any compensatory demand measure on, on any front. And lastly, the third thing that the uh, Troika is wrong is that it applies all this pressure uh, on Greece without uh, being able to promote fiscal and economic unification in the Eurozone as a whole so as to restore confidence because the absence of confidence, the collapse of confidence, as I explained in the sustainability of, of the Euro, penalizes exclusively the periphery. The core gains, because nobody believes that Germany will leave the euro, so everybody is investing in Germany, and Germany enjoys excessively low borrowing costs, while everybody believes that Greece may drop out or Italy may drop out, and they penalize these countries with excessively high borrowing costs. Therefore, I now come to my, to my answer to the Troika. My answer to the Troika will be a qualified no, in the sense that I will have to admit that uh, Greece is not, uh, is not correct, is not consistent in applying its applications. There is no way to conceal this, because we did, uh, did have a series of very bad governments over the last uh, four to five years, I would say over the, over the last nine years following 2004, that's a fact. But then I would not negotiate with the Troika on the mix of the policies, because this is a matter for the heads of government. But I would not do as the current government is doing, that, well, uh, we wish to follow your measures, but we can't because we, don't, we lack uh, a majority in parliament, because this is a very bad politics, and nobody uh, buys this kind of argument. I would like to convince them along the lines I suggested, that their strategy is wrong. Of course, you, say, you may say, how Greece will convince Mrs. Mrs. Merkel and Mrs. Schäuble about this when not even Mr. Monti uh, achieved, uh, succeeded in convincing them a year ago when he was praying and asking desperately Mrs. Merkel to give him a helping hand uh, in terms of uh, advancing more rapidly in unification measures so as to sell his policies in Italy. Mr. Monti got no help, 
and his government fell. The same may, may happen to Greece, but still I think the effort is warranted. The only way to talk to Mrs. Merkel and Mr. Schäuble is not to uh, ask them, please don't press us because we lack the necessary numbers in Parliament. The only way to talk to them is to convince them, along with other allies possibly, uh, Mr. Letta in Italy, uh, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, that their strategy is wrong because eventually, and in the, over the medium term, it is not consistent with the survival of, of the euro. Now, if that works, it would work. If not, it won't. Time will tell. Okay, thank you very much. I know it's going to be extremely tempting to continue the argument on Greece, but our topic is the single market and competitiveness, so I, I would like to rule out further questions on Greece in favour of those on the single market and competitiveness. And anybody further ones here? Hello, good evening panel. My name's Tim Fairhurst and I uh, work with an organization called the European Tour Operators Association. So um, I feel like I'm, my um, vested interest is in tourism and how competitive that can be. Um, and we spend quite a lot of time looking at measures that promote cross-border services, competitiveness generally. Um, and I think our main concern is that Europe is terribly complacent um, and the, the market we have to look at is global. Um, it isn't just sorting it out internally. It's, is Europe competitive as a destination versus lots of other places people can go? It's about 12% of EU employment, and yet there are a huge number of very protectionist measures that persist that affect tourism, which is a very SME-loaded uh, industry. Um, and I disagree a little bit with, with Damien on, on the uh, professional qualifications regulation, there's about 8,000 regulated professions in Europe, including astrology, uh, which probably, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy related to it. The problem is competitiveness versus the rest of the world, not just inside Europe. I think that's my main point. Okay, thanks. At the front here, please. And then you the back. Thank you. Uh, Waltraud Schäckle from the European Institute. I have a question. I guess it is for, for Damien. What is the relationship between the banking union and the single market for financial services? Could the single market, which is an extremely effective legislative machinery, not be used to speed up the creation of this single supervisory mechanism? Or is there just a legal problem with that? Okay. Anybody else resting to ask a question? Yeah, here again, front. Uh, I'm uh, Luke I'm a student at Ardinger College in Sussex, and my question was um, Mr. Uh, Dulin suggested that um, a banking union would solve Europe's problems and that only Germany and England are blocking it. Isn't it unfair towards countries like Germany to make them pay for Greeks' debt? Is it? Unfair to give out to that one. Yeah. Unfair to Germany to make the pay for Greeks. Yeah. Damien, I think it's a very precise question to you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Just firstly, I'm not sure we do disagree. I know that sounds a bit of a. Uh, I, maybe I wasn't clear enough. What, uh, I, I actually agree with you quite strongly about the number of professions that are regulated and the fact, I mean, it might sound terribly North European this, that we have professional qualifications in the. Um, in, in the professional qualifications director for hairdressers. I'm not sure is uh, quite what I think is important. The issue I was trying to make 
was that actually moving between Europe, people who move and seek mutual recognition of qualifications, is normally accepted. The evidence of protectionism there is not great. The evidence of massive bureaucracy and high levels of regulation, I think, is considerable. Now, you will know your own industry better than I, than I, than I, I ever would. I mean, what is often said in terms of competitiveness debates is, of course, that most of the evidence focuses on goods markets, and that's particularly so in, in, uh, in Europe, and that maybe on services markets there's, there's something really to be said along, along the lines of what, what you, the point you make. In terms of Valtraut's point, Valtraut's point um, the banking union, there's sort of two parts to it. There's the bit finding the money to, uh, to, to, to sort out the thing when bankrupts go... Uh, commercial banks go bankrupt or states go bankrupt. And then there's the regulatory dimension, which they now have established in the single supervisory mechanism. That aspect, I think, was published a couple of weeks ago, the regulation giving the European Central Bank powers. Now, in terms of that, there was arcane legal problems. The issue was they wanted a huge new regulatory office uh, authority to regulate the banking industry, particularly over prudential supervision. But they couldn't think who it should be. There was a lot of arguments about whether it should be the ECB. And it got that for want of anyone better. Now, the two issues were that technically under the treaty, you can't just create new regulatory authorities with huge amounts of powers. There's the Moroni Doctrine, on the one hand, which would have required treaty amendment. And on the other, the ECB, was, its powers were all kind of curtailed in one way or another. So it wasn't meant to do these things initially. Well, it wasn't anticipated. And they find a way out of that and eventually give the power to the ECB. So for the regulatory stuff, they find a sort of legal wiggle round in as far as they can. But what, what about Article 1276, which gave a catch-all? You can argue, but that's not part of the single market, is it? I mean, the single market's 114. It's about regular... For those who don't know, the Article 1276 says that the ECB shall be given powers over prudential supervision. Whether, I mean, that, that, to some extent they rely on that, but what you then have to look at is the, about what, when it says what regulations and decisions the ECB can give, then you actually find there's a much more restricted set of legal competence. Now, for better or for worse, they've interpreted Article 1276 broadly, and it's not for me to say that it's l- legally wrong. What I'm saying was I don't... Um, it clearly wasn't what they were anticipated when they started. And then the, the feature of these things is you have to adapt legal instruments as you go along to circumstances, which is what they've done. And the circumstances have proved trying. And beyond those, they initially uh, envisaged. Do you think that's bold of me, taking on a lawyer? <laughs> Sebastian. Yeah, there was one question directly addressed to me, whether banking union, I say, well, we need a banking union unified resolution mechanism. Isn't it unfair that Germany has to pay for Greek's debt? Um, there are two dimensions to that. The first is the question of banking union, which I think doesn't have to do very much with paying Greeks debt, because, um, see, what is a single uh, um, resolution mechanism doing? It would look at the banks, and if a bank goes bankrupt, it would bail in whoever is a junior bondholder, would bail in all the shareholders, so the shareholders would lose their money, and if this all is not enough, this bank would be nationalized. You need some capital for that. Um, this is something which we have seen in a number of banking crises across the world. The interesting thing is that if this is properly managed and if you really, well, just 
wipe out the shareholders and the junior bondholders, usually the government can make a profit of that. We have seen that in Scandinavia, we have seen that in Switzerland, we have seen that in, in the US. The problem here is that sometimes maybe the banks, there might be too many banks in trouble in one nation, so the nation itself doesn't have the means to do it. But the European level could do it. It could Europeanize these banks so they would be owned by the European Union or by whatever special purpose vehicle you have on that. And then after a few years, it would be sold back to the public. This is not about paying the debt, but this is the, the question how you efficiently uh, solve the, the banking troubles here. The second question is, um, and, and this is a broader question because... Of course, we now have some nations which have too much debt, and Greece is one of them, and I think Greece still has too much debt. I would say with this debt level, there's no way of, of, of uh, ever coming down to sustainable debt levels uh, and, and getting the trust of the market again. And here we need, a we need a solution, and probably the solution would be that Germany has, I mean, a constructive solution would be that Germany has to pay some of that debt. Um, now, is that unfair? Well, if we look what has happened in the past years, Germany has benefited incredibly from the single market. Uh, it has, I mean, you could not imagine the German car companies being where they are if they had only this 80 million um, Germans as, as their home market. Uh, there, there's a lot of studies and they show, well, uh, you need at least 200 million people to, to, to have a car industry of an efficient size. Um, and the, what the Germans have done, they have run large surpluses in the current account. What is a surplus in the current account? That means I sell more abroad than I buy. How can I do this? I have to lend the people some money so they can buy my products. So Germany... What the German banking system has done, it has taken the profits from the German companies and has them lent to the rest of Europe, to Spain, where it went into the housing boom, to Greece, where the banks uh, bought government debt, and so on. So now the question is, if a bank lends or banks lend to people who they know cannot repay, like in the U.S., the subprime mortgage crisis, who's at fault? Is it the poor people who didn't understand the contract? Is it the bank? Usually you would say both have, have some responsibility here. The bank who doesn't do um, the right analysis and, and the, the, the households who took out the loan. And I would say this is the same here for, for some of the over-indebted nations. Uh, someone has bought these papers and the holders are the German financial system, sometimes the French financial system, but then the German banks are very much exposed to the French banks. And, well, you need to find a solution where we can all return to growth again. And this will need to have some debt write down. And in so far, I would say it's not unfair if Germany has to shoulder part of that burden as well. Yeah, I would like to, like to agree with the German again. <laughs> I would like to agree with the German again, yes. <laughs> That's a Greek-German alliance. Now, uh, concerning the question you put, <clears throat> first of all, the, the choice of Greece for, uh, for uh, you, have, uh, you have made is not the right one, because Greece's problem is not bank loans, it's state loans. Bank loans is a Spanish problem, and uh, the, reason, uh, the main reason why the Germany is opposed to creating this resolution fund is because it doesn't want to subsidize the, state, the Spanish government in uh, recapitalizing, recapitalizing the Spanish banks. The problem of Greece was uh, state debts and state deficits, while the problem of, of Spain and Ireland was bank debt and bank deficits, which have been assumed by the state and indirectly pushed up uh, public debt. So uh, this is so, so far as the, the, the choice you have made. Now, concerning uh, Greece's state debt, uh, 
uh, one should go a bit more deeply into this. Why Germany and, the, uh, and other countries are asked now to forgive uh, some part of the Greek state debt? The reason, uh, the moral reason for this is the following. Uh, the Greek debt uh, is not so much high in absolute terms. It is high relative to GDP. This is what makes this debt unsustainable. It is a ratio of debt to GDP. And what happened, unfortunately, in the last uh, uh, four years is that while the debt and the deficits have been brought under some sort of control, the GDP collapsed precisely because the austerity was so, so fierce that it led to a much deeper recession than initially forecast. And to make this more clear is that the IMF, when it was constructing the uh, Greek adjustment program and the other adjustment programs, assumed a fiscal multiplier of one. That is, if you reduce the deficit by one euro, you lose one euro in output. In fact, as the IMF has recently acknowledged, the fiscal multiplier turned out to be closer to four. That is, out of each dollar or euro you gained in deficits and debt, you were losing four euros in the GDP. And the result has been, the old result has been, that although the debt and the deficit denominator were brought under a gradual control, the denominator got out of control because it collapsed. And this is why the ratio of debt to GDP rose. Not because the debt was not content, but because the GDP collapsed. Now, you will say, and so what? Well, and so what? I mean, the countries and the authorities and the institutions which are responsible for following this inefficient and stupid policy because the effect of the reason for applying austerity is to ensure the sustainability of the debt position. But uh, the way they have done it produced the exactly opposite result because they didn't even were clever enough to understand the mechanics and the multipliers, and now they realize that they produce the opposite uh, effect from what they wished. So don't they have to pay for this? <laughs> I think there are some Greeks in the room. Yes, uh, and some English. <laughs> Any last questions, then? Uh, one over here, please. Hello, my name is Alcina Jeffers, and I'm a European LSE, so I just come and listen to the uh, lectures and listen to what has been said. Two things. The people who's been getting the money before the crisis, they're still getting money now. Those poor people are the ones who have been forced to tighten the belt and save stuff. Since as we have a mechanism, why don't we have ordinary poor people do this banking stuff? You mentioned one euro, so that's your one euro versus one dollar, one pound. Each week, every single person, since they have to tighten their belt already, an extra pound would not go astray. This is a single A4 sheet in a UK bank, a German bank, American bank, to count the people in the country who are putting one single dollar, one single pound coin in a pot. At the end of the year, we will know who and how this is done. And people will only do it on a voluntary basis because they want to help their own government come get over the crisis. And let's see how that would work eventually. 
This is not too far off the, the idea of that what my, the American president done back in the New Deal. The Australian government came to the UK and picked the New Deal and take it to Australia and they worked there too in, 19, in 2005. The American was in 1930s back down there. We are 2000 here and they're still doing it in Australia. So why can we not look at a simple mechanism and make it work? Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions? In which case I, I will have one, one quick one for all the panellists. And that is that if we consider our topic tonight, the implicit answer we've had from just about everybody is that completing the single market is not how Europe will become more competitive. Is not? Is not how Europe will become more competitive. But my question to you is, even so, will it help? If we complete the market, single market, will it help to make Europe more competitive? Even if it's not the single answer. So... Yeah, you can try first. No, I fully agree. It will help. I said so. It will help because it will improve potential output. And by improving potential output, it makes Europe more competitive, more competitive over the medium term. Once demand recovers and there is a process of economic recovery, then I think Europe will be able to achieve a higher rate of non-inflationary growth as a result of the opening up of the single market. So what the European Commission is trying to do is the right thing. Definitely, after the initial legislation in the 80s and the 90s, there are new markets, new sectors, new ideas that should be uh, sort of promoted in terms of uh, increased efficiency, uh, particularly in services and in new technologies like digital markets and in new networks such as wireless services. And I believe that uh, whatever is being done now is a good investment for the future. Amy. Um, briefly, if I understood the ladies, please tell me if I misunderstood. I think your question was really getting at who pays for the banks, if I understood it right. And listening to the debate so far, I do think there's a danger of over-nationalising this question. What is a problem, I think, in the current crisis, and I'll come on to this to Ian's question in a moment, is too often, one way or another, it's the old, the poor and the sick who are having to ensure uh, profits of banks or profits of people that took the risk when they made the investment in both creditor and donor states. And this nationalising rhetoric, to be honest, doesn't get around that. I agree fully with Sebastian. You take the risk, you should take the haircut, and the good thing about it is, is you could externalise some of the problems to the rest of the world, which from a European perspective, insofar as there are non-European bonds. No, why if an American, why if Citibank took a punt on a Greek debt, should German or Greek pensioners be paying for, for that? It's, it's, it's a bizarre thing, it strikes me. And I think most American citizens would probably agree with that. So I think you raised that point, and I think this issue of the distributive consequences of funding, this hasn't been fully thought through. In relation to the single market, the answer to your question is yes, Ian, but not in the ways we anticipate. The, um, the history of the single market is it's a much more incremental uh, and process, a less strategic process in its actual results than pe people realise at the time. And you will have to wait and see whether grand initiatives like service liberalisation or digital, uh, digital market create their benefits. Sometimes it can do things, it has to be said, which don't help. I'm fully unconvinced 
of liberalisation in uh, the, the gas market. I can't see what it's done other than create a lot of misadjustment. And I'm not talking about uh, the UK privatisation or anything like that, but just the European process. Sebastian, last word. Yeah, does the completing the single market at least help to improve competitiveness? Um, well, I mean, if you have a severe bacterial infection and you are in lots of pain, it helps to take some aspirin. Yeah, it's, it probably doesn't hurt. Um, but the question is, does it get you anywhere? And I would say, along these lines, it does help, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And I would like to make one point, and also mentioning the New Deal once more here. Uh, if you look at the literature for emerging markets, what you do in, in, in a crisis, uh, the IMF has learned a lot, and at least they say during the Argentinian crisis, Brazilian crisis, Asian crisis, and so on. And they talk a lot, and this links a little bit what we have heard before on um, well, first you have to do a diagnostic, what's wrong? Is it public finance? Is it the banking system? Then you have to, um, to sequence your reforms right, and you have to look for the policy mix. And basically, none of these things have been done correctly in, in, in Europe here. And, uh, well, the single market, again, it, it's a nice to have. It's good to, to bring it forward. I think the measures on the table will not do very much on it, and even if they are, if, if they are brought, uh, if they are completely, um, well, quickly passed into legislation and uh, are implemented, um, it won't help that much. Because as long as companies don't start to invest anymore and to innovate, because innovation comes from the private sector, um, not much will happen. And if you have a shrinking market in austerity, companies will not innovate and will not invest. Thank you very much. Two quick announcements. This, this session has been recorded, and according to my instructions, unless there are technical difficulties, it will be available as a podcast online before very long. Second, I'd like to thank all the sponsors, the European Institute, the European Council on Foreign Relations, and the European Commission representation in London, which is partners with us in, in this, this series of uh, uh, seminars and conferences. With that, it remains for me to thank you, the audience, for participating and our three speakers for their excellent and disciplined interventions. Thanks very much. Thank you.